Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the Quantum Mechanics, the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everyone in between. Much like, uh, I suppose, Comcast, we've been extending our media empire. We have, yeah. We've, we've been expanding, haven't we? We have. So, um, yeah, if you were thinking about getting rid of the Netflix, we're giving you something <laughs> else to, to, to look at. Yeah. As, long, as long as you only use it for one hour a week. <laughs> well, yeah, or many hours if you just want to put it on repeat. Yeah. But you can now find us on YouTube. Yes, we're at... Uh, God, we're at the Quantum Mechanics, I think, is our... What do they call it a handle? Do they call it a handle? I think As so. As you can see, we're, we're a bit new to this game. <laughs> um, it's like a couple of grandparents. Yeah, it really is. It's funny, when I was setting the thing up and kind of dropping the... <laughs> basically, what we've put in there is we're going to put our podcasts in there so you can listen to them on YouTube. Even saying it out loud sounds funny. But what we will be doing, you know, when we talk about, oh, this photo or this whatever we're going to try and drop those bits in so it's not like i wouldn't say it's a immersive visual experience but it's a little bit more enhanced than uh just listening to it on the podcast and you know if it goes well we'll keep adding to it and developing it i think one day we will be known as the jean-michel jar of paranormal podcasting yeah, yeah. there'll be lasers yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll be projecting our images on the side of buildings. It'll be all that. Yeah, even though the building will be your garage. But <laughs> So if you want to, go and check us out on YouTube. Again, we, it's another thing to say, you know, like and subscribe. I think we're at 10 followers or something now on YouTube. So it's it, early doors, but we'll keep putting that up there. And if you like it, let us know. And uh, yeah, as it progresses, we'll try and add more visuals and do other little bits and pieces. But... As uh, as Ben says, it's uh, it's our first foray into the YouTube world. Yeah, and we will be adding some other bits and pieces. We've got some other platforms in the works. We're sort of basically learning how to use them properly and then yeah. working out how to um, do the right amount of media and stuff for you. But, um, yeah, there, there is – we're sort of – spring is springing. Um, it isn't quite sprung, but yeah. that has given us – renewed vitality to um uh open it up we'll be true multi-platform podcasters i like i like the way you say we're we're learning how to use them properly it's probably more the <laughs> definition is we're learning how to be just about competent <laughs> that is my strap line yeah. just about competent if we had one of those vans you know like how window yeah. vat installers have like a, a vision for a better future something horribly punny yeah, like that yeah, yeah. We, we, we just be definitely adequate <laughs> yeah, yeah very british though it's good yes um well this week uh this was inspired a little bit after a conversation ben that we had after we recorded last week's episode, because we both noted that April Fool's Day is coming up. And we were reminiscing about some of the great, famous April April Fool's pranks, I guess, of all time. Would you call them a prank? Yeah, pranks, hoaxes, whatever so, yeah. you want to call them. Now, as this episode goes out uh, in the week we kick into April, we thought we would start by looking at our favourite April Fool pranks. Excellent idea. So I'm going to kick off with one that actually happened before I was born, but it's the one I always remember. It was uh, broadcast on the BBC on April the 1st in 1957 
on the BBC flagship news and current affairs programme, Panorama, which is still going. Can you imagine them doing that today? I know. Um, and I'm going to play you some audio. Um, uh, obviously, there is a video that you can go and check out on YouTube or at the BBC archives. Uh, and we'll talk about it after you've heard the clip. But the pictures, if you were looking at them, uh, to give it some context, they're basically people picking spaghetti off trees and then drying it out in the sunshine. Have a listen. It isn't only in Britain that spring this year has taken everyone by surprise. Here, in the Ticino, on the borders of Switzerland and Italy, the slopes overlooking Lake Lugano have already burst into flower, at least a fortnight earlier than usual. But what, you may ask, has the early and welcome arrival of bees and blossom to do with food? Well, it's simply that the past winter, one of the mildest in living memory, has had its effect in other ways as well. Most important of all, it's resulted in an exceptionally heavy spaghetti crop. The last two weeks of March are an anxious time for the spaghetti farmer. There's always the chance of a late frost, which, while not entirely ruining the crop, generally impairs the flavour and makes it difficult for him to obtain top prices in world markets. But now these dangers are over and the spaghetti harvest goes forward. Spaghetti cultivation here in Switzerland is not, of course, carried out on anything like the tremendous scale of the Italian industry. Many of you, I'm sure, will have seen pictures of the vast spaghetti plantations in the Po Valley. For the Swiss, however, it tends to be more of a family affair. So, Ben, do you, do you remember that one? Have you, you, I mean, it's legendary, isn't it? Well, I was, I was minus quite a lot of... Uh, Years of 57, uh, in 1957, but yeah, I do remember it because I think if you grew up in Britain, it was defined as the very best April Fool's prank that anyone ever pulled. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. The BBC managed to fool a huge portion of the British public with that story about spaghetti farmers in Switzerland, of all places. <laughs> I guess it's close to the border. Now... I remember it really well because they did manage to fool one of my own family members. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and I remember them telling me when I was a child about how they believed the report for a long time and they, they, they did actually think that spaghetti did actually grow on trees. <laughs> and the other bit I love, I remember them telling me they believed that there must be different trees for different shaped pasta. Oh, my God. That's amazing. So they, they took it even a level further. But just to give you some background on the hoax itself, because actually it's quite an interesting story behind it. So that legendary April Fool hoax was dreamt up by a BBC cameraman called Charles de Jaeger, who, as a child in Australia, remembered a teacher teasing him and his classmates saying that they were so stupid they would believe that spaghetti grew on trees. And that's where he got the idea from. He pitched the idea for this April Fool hoax to the editor of Panorama, oh God, different times, who gave him a budget of £100 to film the segment. Did for, so did he go abroad for that 100 quid? It was partially, yes, it partially filmed in the UK and partially filmed in Switzerland. Wow. Yeah. The voiceover was by respected broadcaster Richard Dimbleby, which I guess helped to give it a bit of credibility and credence. Right? Yeah, yeah. It was watched by 7 million people when it went out. 
some of whom phoned the BBC to ask if they planted spaghetti in their back garden, would it grow? <laughs> oh, bless them. And I love this bit. Do you know what the BBC said to those people who called in? Did they say yes? They had a script that said, place a sprig of spaghetti in a tin of tomato sauce and hope for the best. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, it is mad. And it... It's funny looking, when you tell people now, and I'm sure everyone listening to this will go, how did anyone fall for that? But I think you've got to remember, like, back in 1957, in Britain, at least, spaghetti wasn't really a foodstuff that people knew about that much. You no. Know, it was real, it was quite an exotic food, I would think, in the 1950s. Yeah, yeah, well, Britain. it's still off the back of rationing. In fact, some things would either still be under rationing or just coming out of it. Yeah, yeah. So you can see why it kind of took hold. But I think it's a beautifully executed piece of April foolery. Do you know if they ever came clean? (sighs) That's a really good question. I mean, they must have at some point because um, it came out. Certainly at the time they had that line of saying, you know, just try planting your own spaghetti. But surely it would have been debunked pretty quickly. But it's interesting that that many people fell for it, that, you know, when we're talking that period and people talking about UFO encounters and, um, I guess, meetings with extraterrestrials, then, you know, if you pull it back to um, the paranormal world, maybe it's not surprising that a lot of people perhaps did feel, did fool, did fall for pictures of people throwing hubcaps and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the good thing about the spaghetti one, and probably why it stuck so much, because um, they didn't put olive oil in the spaghetti, sorry, that's a bad joke, <laughs> um, that it really stuck so much is because it was a nice simple one, wasn't it? It's just a simple idea rather than too convoluted, you know what I mean? Yeah, So it is. It kind of makes you scratch your head. And then I guess, again, back in the 1950s, if you saw something on a current affair or a news programme, you kind of believed it was true, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there weren't that many sources of news. It's also a very gentle prank, isn't it? It is a gentle prank, yeah. I, I wonder if anybody did put a kind of dried sprig of spaghetti in a can of tomato sauce and see if anything happened. That would have been brilliant. Strangely and weirdly, I was just speaking to my partner and we are making spaghetti this evening from scratch. Um, I've just made some dough, so I know the true oranges of it. Uh, You're not going out to pick your own. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. Uh, That's far too organic for me. Have you got any favourite April foolery? Um, I quite liked... uh, So Sky did something... Many, many years later, Sky, if you don't know, is like um, it's like our main satellite broadcaster in the UK. And they did a prank. So back in the early 90s, people thought the satellite dishes were ugly. And, right. and, and at one point, you even had to get planning permission for them. And they ran a whole story about how you could now buy thatched <laughs> satellite dishes. So if you had a thatched house, it would blend in oh, with the rest of the house. And... Um, I remember watching that and sort of thinking, oh, that might be true. 
Right. So it's possible. Got you. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was another one that got me very excited. And I remember trying to convince my dad that it was true. You remember the um, the strap line of Audi, which I think it probably still is, Vorsprung der Technik, forward yeah. with technology. Yeah. So this is the time when Knight Rider was big in the 80s. Yeah. And you remember the main thing about Kit, the car, is you could talk to him. He was sentient. Yeah. So <laughs> Unlike the Hoff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can't talk, never, never talk to the Hoff. Uh, they ran an advert that said that they were bringing out a talking car just like Kit. Right. And the strap line was something like you don't need to be a night rider to talk to your car or something along those lines. And for me, that was exactly what was required in the world of cars. Forget your five-speed gearboxes in your rear wash wipes from the 80s. A talking car so that when you're driving on holiday, you've got something to talk to that isn't your parents. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, that is a great... I could see as a kid, that just would capture your imagination. That's yeah. My, yeah. My dad, I remember him just disdainfully looking at me, raising his <laughs> eyebrows and going, no, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did think about... When we talked about it briefly, should we fake our own story for April Fool's Day? But I think we both agreed... We don't like faking stuff or hamming it up, and not really. I'm not a good enough actor. No, no. so we're not going to do that. So, so don't worry. Um, but what I thought we could do instead, Ben, is go through some paranormal stories, some that are reported true paranormal tales. Now, obviously, it's a paranormal tale, so pretty hard to kind of say whether a ghost is true or not, and that some are hoaxes. So, I guess my definition of a true paranormal tale is one that didn't have any proved element of trickery in it it wasn't actually reported what all of these all the stories i'm going to feature today have been reported in the press some of them might be true some of them might be hoaxes and i thought what i'd do is tell the story and ben you and the listeners at home can kind of judge whether you think they're a hoax or reported at least as a true paranormal story and then i'll reveal whether they were or not brilliant perfect well i'll imagine my virtual panel of listeners good good so i've got four stories today like i said all of them may be true all of them might be hoaxes or there might be a mixture of both does that make sense that makes sense hit me so our first story came to light in the late 1980s it, I'm glad it doesn't involve a talking car because that would have really ruined it, wouldn't it? Um, it does involve a team of Russian geologists who were drilling in Siberia. Have you heard of this story, possibly? I think so. Go on. Okay, so you might have to stay hushed until I finish then, if you do know it. They were drilling deep into the permafrost to analyse samples. When they drilled down about nine miles, their drill started to spin frantically. It was likely that the drill had broken through the permafrost into a larger area, I guess like a large cave or something, that was the implication. Right. And there were reports of strange noises and vibrations coming up from the hole itself. The manager of the project, uh, Mr. Azakov, decided to send scientific sensors into the hole, including temperature measuring devices and microphones. The heat sensor he sent down the hole, so remember this is going down like nine miles, right? Uh, Recorded a reading of 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, That's just over 1,000 degrees centigrade. So that's about the temperature of lava. 
So you can see what the implication is there. Or a McDonald's apple pie. <laughs> yeah, or a McDonald's apple pie. Uh, the assumption from the scientists was that they'd hit some kind of pocket of lava nine miles down. However, things got weird when they listened to the audio recording. Now, I'm going to play the audio that they captured. The first 30 seconds of it sounds what like what you might expect. It's like, to me, it sounds like the microphone travelling down the hole, nothing weird. Then it goes quiet uh, for a little bit. And then what they heard after that, nobody expected. Have a listen. So there you go. The screams, basically. It's quite haunting, isn't it? It's really haunting. And as you can imagine, the scientists involved in the project were completely freaked out. Many of them quit immediately. Others were treated for shock. Rumours started to circulate, as they would, that they had drilled into hell itself and that the sound they'd recorded were the screams of lost souls in that what, what would you call it? Dark, hot place, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the most intriguing thing about that is that if that was nine miles down and it was hell, hell is closer than Oxford. <laughs> yeah. That's a, good, that's a good line for a movie, isn't it? Hell is closer than you think. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that is quite good, yeah. Whereas hell is closer than Oxford. Well, that also works. <laughs> so that audio uh, was passed to Art Bell of Coast to Coast Radio in 2002. That was after the story itself had gained some traction in the press. Now, the owner of the recording said, and I quote, My uncle collected videos on the paranormal and the supernatural. He passed away recently. He let me listen to one of the audio tapes that he had on the sounds from hell in Siberia, and I copied it. He received his copy from a friend who worked at the BBC. So the, so that was the audio tape. The original story itself was featured in many publications, including Christian publications in the US and Trinity Broadcasting Network. Now, Trinity Broadcasting Network did a follow-up on the story after receiving more information from a newspaper in Finland who reported, along with the audio recordings, there were reports of scientists encountering another other paranormal activity, with one source was quoted as saying, what really unnerved the Soviets, apart from the voice recording, was the appearance that same night of a fountainhead of luminous gas shooting up from the drill site. 
and out of the midst of this incandescent cloud pillar, a brilliant being with bat wings revealed itself with the words, in Russian, I have conquered. Okay. I don't know why at that point they didn't lose the room, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So... Ben, you may know this story, so maybe you need to keep quiet. But if you don't, uh, true reported paranormal encounter or a hoax? That's the question, right? I think you do know this one, don't you? I can I, tell by your face. I, I do, I do. It's. I think it's partially true. I think the drilling and st- stuff is correct, but all of the noise around... Oh, if you pardon the pun. <laughs> the noise around the, uh, the recording was misinterpreted and used to push religious ideas i believe that it is actually a recording of escaping gas well let's let's i think you you summarize the bits of it because i what i've done is i've broken this story down into three parts there's the original story of the scientist's chilling discovery in siberia see what i did there chilling nice nice there's the audio recording itself and then there's these later reports of this, I guess, what you call it, a cloud entity with bat wings and the writing <laughs> in the sky. <coughs> so let's take them back to front. So the bat winged entity... Back to front. Back to front. Good, I like it. So the bat winged entity and the writing in a cloud saying, I have conquered. This later story came from a Finnish newspaper, which I guess would give it some credibility, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it actually wasn't a newspaper. It was an evangelic. I can't even say that. An evangelicist. I can't say Evangelical. That's the... Why can't... There's these words. That, there's one word. <laughs> You've got e- to stop drinking before I know, I like It wasn't actually a newspaper. It was an evangelical Lutheran magazine. And this part of the story was actually taken from a section of the magazine where readers could post whatever they wanted, unmoderated, with no (laughs) fact-checking. Oh, like the internet. Yeah, pretty much like the internet, but it's back in the day. So, yeah, so no fact-checking, no um, moderation, nothing. So, pretty certain, due to the outlandish nature of it, I think we can firmly say that part of the story is a hoax. It's a creepypasta. Yeah, exactly. So what about the audio recording? I like the backstory... Of it being connected with a BBC. Yeah. They they got the recording. It reminded me a little bit of uh, Alien Autopsy. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, oh, we got the original thing and then we lost it and we had to recreate it. There's bits of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the audio was analysed by Mythbusters website, Skeptoid. It's a good website. The screams that you heard, you, you weren't right on this point. You were... It's something completely different. The screams you heard were made up of looped screams rather than a direct continuous recording. That's what ah. they found. And it is likely, not definitive, but likely that these screams were sampled from an Italian horror movie called Baron Blood. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So somebody had basically taken, I mean, back in those days, it would have been kind of slicing it, I guess, yeah. recording it and slicing it and looped it to create I love the, the effort they went to. Yeah, there was a lot. It can't, when you talk about it now, it feels like, you know, it's probably something you could knock up um, in Garage Band in five minutes. But back in the day, that would have taken quite a lot of effort to produce. That. I love that, yeah. 
It looks likely the embellishment to the story of the ring creature was a fake. The audio recording was a fake. But what about the original story of the scientists digging and coming across these weird spooky sounds? As for the original story, this seems to have been well and truly debunked by investigator Rich Buhler. The original story also seems to have come from the same Finnish magazine we talked about earlier. Uh. And as we know, as these things do, it got picked up by other media sources and it took on a life of its own in the more mainstream press and, like you said, in kind of Christian press. Like, it's a good story, isn't it? They're kind of digging into hell. Yeah, you can yeah. see why mm. people... Um, so that fact alone suggests it was a hoax. There are no records of any geological drilling expeditions in Siberia at that time. There was a similar project in Kola in the Kola Peninsula in Russia, but nothing paranormal happened, just regular minerals were found. So it looks like the Finnish magazine will have picked up the story or been fooled into publishing it as facts, when actually, this is in the other bit, it is believed to have been a fictional short story that was published in 1989 called Well to Hell. Oh, brilliant. So the person that bought it to um, Art Bell, do you think they believed it or were they pulling pulling his leg as well? I don't know. That's a really good question. I guess there's two options there, aren't they? Aren't there? Either he was fooled by his uh, relative. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Which is possible because if it was somebody who had connections with audio recording, it's probably one of those things he kind of said it he could have said it at a prank and then the poor guy who ended up with the recording was never told that it was a hoax yeah, that's a possibility yeah, yeah, definitely or he was trying to fall coast to coast hard to know really it really reminds me of do you remember ah oh, maybe 18 months ago we spoke about the thunderbird picture yes yeah 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 it's that kind of thing which is like a story reported upon a story with strange uh sort of origins to it yeah yeah definitely that one as you called it ben hoax one to everybody who was saying hoax i w- i'm disappointed i got the gas wrong <laughs> yeah oh you and your gas <laughs> <laughs> let's get on to story number two so ben when we started this podcast i was not expecting that we'd be talking about rabbits and the paranormal so much no they come up a lot yeah and we've covered a wealth of bunny-based material on the show, right? Bunny-based material. <laughs> and our second story this week is no exception, as I want to talk about the legend of the Bunnyman at Bunnyman Bridge. Oh, I don't know anything about this. I really I wondered if you would, because I know you did an episode on bunnies and you're quite into this idea of giant bunnies, so I'm glad you haven't heard it. The news report I'm about to read, is it a hoax or a real rabbit horror so the story comes from fairfax county in the united states and it was published in 2003 the article says on halloween night revelers sought out a local legend with as many twists as the curvy fairfax station road itself this from a local paper by the way (laughs) as you can tell (laughs) oh Oh, yeah i know that it was so curvy (laughs) um the only passage uh, to a railroad underpass loosely named Bunnyman Bridge. 
A Fairfax County police barricade blocked the Colchester Road segment of Fairfax Station Road on Friday, October the 31st, in an attempt to protect area residents from Halloween revellers seeking a paranormal experience at Bunnyman Bridge. Technically, revellers were allowed to walk down to the bridge, but police wouldn't allow anyone to park cars on the roadside anywhere near the area. Woodbridge resident Mac McAdams arrived with a car full of revellers that wanted to see the bridge. McAdams heard about the bridge on a television special highlighting 10 of the scariest places in America. The show said 21 people had been killed near the bridge, according to McAdams. There was all, they were always hung from the bridge, McAdams said of the bodies. I wanted to see the bunnyman, he said, before driving away. Obviously, because he couldn't park. He wasn't, that, he wasn't that keen that he'd go and find a parking space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm off. <laughs> One version of this story dates back to 1904. According to historian archivist Brian Connolly of the Virginia Room in the Fairfax County Library in the city of Fairfax. For more than 10 years, he researched the Bunnyman and sorted out the law, the LORE. One story involves a prison bus that broke down in the woods of Fairfax Station and convicts escaped the wreckage fleeing into the night. Most were caught except two, Marcus A. Walster and Douglas J. Griffin, who remained at large. A search through the woods turned up half-eaten, dismembered rabbits that finally led to Walster's body by the Fairfax Station Bridge. I, I, I was quite sure that I think that this one of them basically died, and I think the implication is the other one killed him. Oh, I see. Okay, I think from then on, from then on, Griffin, the other one, uh, was known as the Bunny Man. I guess because he'd eaten all these bunnies. Oh right, okay. I was expecting a giant bunny here. Right, I see. Well, hold your breath. You might get oh. a giant bunny in the end. Okay, I could <laughs> probably do it for thirty seconds. So. <laughs> no, don't hold your breath then. Um, other versions of the law include children hanging from the bridge, a hobo dressed like a bunny, someone dressed in clothes made from rabbit pelts, and a man that lived near the bridge who didn't like children, killing them and hanging them from the bridge. I mean, I just don't go near soft play. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lee High School junior Megan Thornton heard about the Bunnyman Bridge from her driving instructor during a behind-the-wheel lesson. I don't know what other lessons <laughs> there are. Of course, of course she did. That's, maybe I should take more driving lessons I want more of these stories. That version included a crazy man that broke out of a mental institution dressed like a bunny and killed children. Megan remembered that particular driving lesson as being spooky. No shit, Megan. <laughs> oh, my God. I just want to know where he got the costume from. I know. Can you imagine, though? You're on your driving lesson. <laughs> if you just turn left here, yeah, there's a crazed bunnyman about that kills children. <laughs> <laughs> now, mirror signal manoeuvre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're not checking your mirrors, are you? <laughs> The version student Courtney Tidwell heard involved children from a broken-down school bus around Halloween time. They found the bodies turned inside out, she said. West Springfield junior Ashley Stern heard another version. She knew some people that went to the bridge at midnight. Some guy that escaped from jail, he eats bunnies to survive, she said. Ashley's story involves children's bodies hanging from the bridge as well. I heard he hung them by their intestines, she said. 
So it's pretty gruesome stuff going on here. That's also some good skills. Yeah. Fellow student Angelo, Angelo Tan heard about a girl who went exploring by the bridge. I heard this girl went there around Easter and she got freaked out when she saw a giant bunny, he said. I used to go there all the time. All the time but Halloween, said West Springfield student Vanessa Liga of the area by the bridge. I think there were less houses back there. It made for a creepier scene. The story, An- Annandale High School senior Katie Statton heard, involved a crazy guy too. His story involved children that taunted this guy to the point that he killed them. He was mentally unstable. He would wear the bunny suit. They, the children, would make fun of him, she said. It's creepy there in the dark, she added. Now, the legend has gone on on like this through the years, and in 1992, Conley started his research. So this is the guy who's been researching this in the local area. We started getting a lot of questions about it. I wanted to put it to bed once and for all, Conley said. He summed it up in an 11-page document, The Bunny Man Unmasked. Good title. I like his title. Oh, there's a subtitle as well, The Real Life Origins of an Urban Legend. Conley used old news accounts and police investigation reports of murders in Fairfax County, but nothing remotely related to a bunny until his first solid lead in a collection of stories called the Maryland Folklore Archive. Around Halloween 1970, Fairfax County Police were searching for a man in a white bunny suit who found people on his property and threw a hatchet through their car window in an attempt to scare them off. I mean, that would definitely do it. A few weeks later, the man in the bunny suit re-emerged off Guinea Road on the porch of a new unoccupied house, according to Connolly's account. There really was some guy doing strange things in a bunny suit, Connolly said. So what do we think then? Hoax or haunting? So, am I? Is it the whole? Is am I guessing everything you've said is a hoax, or just the fact that there is or not a real sort of route to the story? You go where you want to go. Ah, uh, see, this reminds me of like the Goatman Bridge, and oh, I don't know. There's a lot of You've used a lot of names in there, so that's a very detailed story if it's not right. Uh, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go true. I think Ooh. that might be true. Okay. Well let's break this story into two parts, which might give you some hope. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the story from nineteen oh four of a bus crash from a prison or an asylum in Fairfax Two men said to be living in the woods and eating rabbits. Many bodies found hanging from the Fairfax Bridge. Some reports of them being just rabbits, some reports of them being human. And then we've got the stories of the students that had kind of embellished it. None of those stories seem to be true. Oh. The 1904 event was connected to Lawton Prison, but the prison hadn't been built at the time and there was never an asylum in the area. Somehow, the legend got connected to that particular bridge going under the railroad tracks on Colchester Road. Connolly thinks the secluded spot added to it, 
it's a spooky looking spot, he said. So what about the second part of the story? A man dressed in a bunny suit with an axe attacking people in the 1970s. Yeah, I could see how he might have got the idea from the legend and done that. That part of the story is true. Ah. According to Reader's Digest, a pair of mysterious and scary incidents occurred in that area involving a man dressed in a bunny suit. A young couple were taking a nighttime drive when a man dressed in a white bunny suit hurled an axe at their car. Good Lord. It broke their car window, but neither of them were hurt. Only two weeks later, another Fairfax County man discovered an axe-wielding guy in a bunny suit chopping up the porch of a recently built, unoccupied house. Oh, my God. <clears throat> Imagine seeing that. That would freak you out, wouldn't it? He had gone by the time the police arrived and the real-life bunny man was never apprehended. And Fairfax Station's bridge has been all but renamed Bunnyman Bridge because of the legend. And it's so popular that if you go to Google Maps, it's actually called Bunnyman Bridge on Google Maps. Wow. Okay. Okay, that's pretty cool. But um, but no truth apart from a crazy man sort of building on the truth. Looks, looks like it. He's either built on the lore or the legends... And he's just wondering... I mean, that's freaky enough in itself, though, isn't it? A kind yeah, of, yeah. A guy with an axe walking around in a bunny suit, throwing it at your car and chopping up people's porches. Some days you've got nothing else to wear, though, right? <laughs> that's true. That's, that's true. That's what it is. I'm kind of getting... I think you kind of got that there might be a bit of a split in that one. I think you've called both of them pretty much so far, haven't you? You've got a few details wrong, but you've called them both. Okay. So our next story involves a 14th century cellar under a tourist information centre in Coventry, in England. Now, apart from the multiple reports of intense paranormal activity, what makes this story incredibly interesting is that a local academic who investigated the hauntings may have solved the mysteries of what ghosts really are. That got your attention, didn't it? <laughs> uh, my, my eyes are my eyes are poking up. So, what ghosts really are? Yeah. Okay. That's a big. That's a big. I was going to say shoes to fill. That's not the really right. Uh, to hell of a boast. Hell of a boast. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's get into the story. Now, many people over the years have reported paranormal activity in this 14th century cellar, with many doubters having their sceptical beliefs shaken when they have seen the strange ghost of a woman. The story was picked up by the Guardian newspaper in 2000, who started by detailing the experiences of a paranormal investigator who had a fright in the cellar. She called herself a white witch, one of three, as it happens, who had visited the 14th century cellar near Coventry Cathedral at different times. Word has spread that there was a presence down there, Whatever it was certainly put the fear of God into witch number three. She was up the steps and through the tourist information office, which stands over the cellar, almost before staff had noticed she'd gone. Carol Young, assistant manager of the tourist office at the time, noticed that the witch looked frightened to death, and she wasn't surprised. She too has had first-hand experience of the apparition, 
and felt as though she were intruding or disturbing something when she took tours down to the cellar. Others had been affected as well. Colour was seen to drain from the face of a visiting Canadian journalist who said later that he was sure the face of a woman had been peering over his right shoulder. So this, that, that, that's interesting. I read another account of that. He was just a complete paranormal sceptic, went down there, saw this face and was scared to death by the whole thing. Nice, nice. News of these strange phenomena had spread not only to the community of white witches, but also to Coventry University. So, Ben, here we have a mixture of white witches, hardened sceptical seasoned journalists, among other people, who've experienced paranormal activity in the 14th century cellar below the tourist centre in Coventry. Okay, sounding pretty convincing so far. Now, at this point, our academic enters the picture. Now, return to the Guardian article and the work done by someone called Vic Tandy. He was an experimental officer and part-time lecturer in the School of International Studies and Law at Coventry University. He could also be described as the university's chief ghostbuster. (laughs) Two years ago, he and Dr Tony Lawrence of the Psychology Department wrote a paper called Ghost in the Machine for the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research. They cited infrasound as the cause of the apparition seen by staff at a different location, a so-called haunted laboratory in Warwick. Right. There's more. Oh, okay. Tandy sent in another contribution to the same magazine. This time, the second one was called Something in the Cellar, and it nails the culprit which terrified the Canadian journalist and the white witch. Infrasound again. Infrasound, what's more, at the same level as that found in the other location, the Warwick Laboratory, at 18.9 hertz. And as the point nine suggests, there is a very accurate reading established over a lengthy period using a sophisticated spectrum analyzer from the university's Department of Engineering. Infrasound is not easy to measure because it vibrates at a frequency below the level of human hearing. Evidence from NASA and other sources suggests that it can cause you to hyperventilate and your eyeballs to vibrate, says Tandy. (laughs) Really? What are you saying? That's not a very pleasant thought. I don't want vibrating eyeballs. (laughs) Having established its presence here, a level likely to cause anxiety and apparitions, he is now trying to establish why some people are affected and not others. Meanwhile, he's developing a device, a sort of litmus test, which will detect the presence of infrasound. It won't cost thousands and it won't require a 13-amp plug. That does rather restrict your area of research, he says with a grin. For the time being, he's using another spectrum analyzer, cheaper than the one belonging to the engineering department and battery-driven. Surely science in the 21st century will confine the ghosts to history by explaining them away. Not necessarily. When it comes to the supernatural phenomena, Tandy says he's sitting on the fence. That's where scientists should be until we've proven that there isn't anything, says Tandy, who has had some personal experience of what it feels like to have a ghostly presence near you. It happened to him some years ago when he was designing... 
uh, anaesthetic machines in that haunted Warwick laboratory. So he'd worked there and he was de- designing a machine. Uh-huh. A cleaner had already given him in her notice, complaining that she'd seen a grey object out of the corner of her eye and gone all cold. Tandy was working late one night when the grey thing came for him. I felt the hairs rise on the back of my neck, he recalls. It seemed to be between me and the door, so the only thing I could do was turn and face it. It disappeared, but only to reappear in a different form the following day, when Tandy, a keen fencer, as in thin salt rather than back garden... Well, he did say everyone should sit on the fence, so I did wonder... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thought I'd clarify that. (laughs) He was oiling his foil... <laughs> I haven't heard it called that before. Yeah, he was oiling his foil and changing its grip for a forthcoming tournament. The handle was clamped in a vice on the workbench, yet the blade started vibrating like mad, he remembers. This time it was daylight. There were other people around. Although the hairs were rising once again, he was determined to find a scientific explanation. Why did the blade vibrate in one part of the room and not another? Because, as it turned out, infrasound was coming from a fairly new extractor fan. When we finally switched it off, it it was as if a huge weight was lifted, he said. It makes me think that one of the applications of this ongoing research could be the link between infrasound and sick building syndrome. Tandy is yet to establish the source of the infrasound beneath Coventry's Tourist Information Centre, but he's coming to the conclusion that it has nothing to do with the sandstone cellar in the former Benedictine Priory. The highest readings are in the doorway and the corridor outside. That's what's resonating. It's a modern corridor, built a few years ago to provide access for tourists. Some visitors have apparently been spooked before they've even set foot over the cellar's threshold, although they might take some convincing of that, especially the White Witch. So, Ben, this story, published in The Guardian, details extensive paranormal activity in a 14th century cellar above a tourist information centre and the academic who seems to have solved the mystery of what ghosts really are, infrasound waves. Is it a hoax or not? I think this is difficult because I have heard of infrasound again. I didn't mean the pun there, but it's been... I was reading a book about the Dyolotov Pass incident where those um, Soviet skiers were killed uh, or or died, and um, there's a thought there that there's infrasound there caused by the wind, and that's what caused them to go mad. Right. And I have heard other people investigating infrasound as being a cause of, like you say, unusual symptoms, which might sometimes manifest as paranormal. And I could see that somebody might take that on and do more with it. The only two things that stick out are, there's a part of that story where he seems unreasonably obsessed by the cost of the instruments. Right. Um, where I'm not quite sure why he would do that. Right. Um, and also, he doesn't talk about replicating in laboratory conditions. You would imagine that you would get a source of infrasound and put 10 people in a lab without it, 10 people in a lab with it, mm-hmm. and get their responses. So... I think 
I hmm, I'm going to call this as fake and the fact that it's underneath a tourist information centre makes me think there's a PR agency behind it to encourage tourism. Right. That's what I'm going to say. Okay. Well, Ben, it's true. No, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I've not fully read it yet, but I have downloaded his peer-reviewed academic paper on the subjects. I think we might return to that in another episode. Yeah. Don't you think? Definitely. But it's basically suggesting that some people are susceptible to these audio waves. Would you call them audio waves? They are audio waves. Yeah, they're audio waves, yeah. That can cause hallucinations in some people and could explain many or, I guess, all paranormal encounters, or at least some of them. Um, And make your eyeballs wobble. Yeah. So I think we'll return to that subject and his paper. I was going to try and do a little bit of it this week, but it's quite a chunky paper and i think it's probably worth a proper look at because you know i'm quite obsessed with that idea that there is an audio wave what was it 18.9 hertz that can some way kind of convince you of paranormal or strange activity now somebody might correct me on this but i think we've discovered that elephants communicate via infrasound oh really Mm. i didn't know that they make rumbles and groans that they make rumbles in the jungles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. and that's how they um, get on, which makes me think that maybe you, if this was true, you might see ghosts near elephants, but that's for another time. Ooh, certainly in elephants' graveyards. And now I want to know if that's true as well. <laughs> I think they go back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. Well, I'm feeling an ele- elephant episode coming on. Yeah, okay. All right, we'll have the elephant in the room. Oh, very good. Yeah. Let's move on to our final story, known as the Great Landidno Ghosts. Now, this has been po- this was published in multiple newspapers at the time, but um, I'm taking a summary of it from North Wales Live website. So on the eve of the First World War, the dramatic appearance of a strange ghostly figure on the Great Orm became the talk of Landidno. Within days of the sighting, was being reported in newspapers around Britain. The Great Orme is like a spittle of land, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's like a cliff, cliff area, right? Oh, right, yeah, yeah. The ghost's first appearance was reported by a letter writer in the North Wales Weekly News on Friday, January the 10th, 1913. The writer put pen to paper in the hope of reporting... This is so of the times. This is what he said. I want to report a little matter which I deem to be of scientific importance. (laughs) (laughs) How cute. On December the 31st, while strolling with his wife along Marine Drive, close to the old La Roche photography studio near Happy Valley, the pair had been startled by what they saw beneath the Great Orm's cliffs. For a moment, we were too surprised to think or act, and while we stood looking at the form, it suddenly commenced gliding slowly towards us, he wrote. Recalling memories of practical jokes, I advanced towards the figure with the objective of discovering its character. But to my amazement, no sooner had I commenced to approach it than it disappeared, and I could find no trace of any physical form. Accompanied by a friend, he visited the same spot the next night, only to idle away an hour in the darkness. Determined to get to the bottom of the mystery, he then enlisted a sceptical weekly news representative to investigate the alleged phenomenon. 
It was a dark, cheerless night and the road was deserted except for two or three lovemaking couples, he wrote. I think lovemaking is probably used in a... not probably the term I, we'd think of it. I, I think they're just having a smooch. Yeah, a bit of a smooch. Um, <laughs> they were clambering up the mound of the foot of the cliff. This is the people who were trying to find the ghosts, not the lovemaking couples. Um, <laughs> we secreted ourselves and waited. Nothing happened. And after waiting a considerable time, we came to the conclusion that the whole thing was a hoax. In an uncharitable frame of mind, we descended into the road and were on the point of returning to the town when our attention was attracted by what appeared to be an unnatural phosphorific shadow, something within the hollow of the cliff a few yards away from the road. We made towards it, but before we had advanced more than a few paces, it disappeared. And although we remained in the vicinity some time, we couldn't find any trace of the substance or whatever it was. So by the following Monday, the story had appeared in the likes of the Dundee Evening Telegraph, the Sheffield Evening Telegraph, and it was also reported by the Lincolnshire Chronicle. The Western Mail got into the act too, noting the great Orm ghost had aroused considerable interest. So, Ben, we have this strange ghostly glowing figure spotted by a man walking at night that just disappeared when he approached. He then takes a sceptical journalist with him a couple of nights later. Initially, they saw nothing, but as they were heading back on the road, the entity was seen again and similarly disappeared. Genuine haunting or complex hoax? Mm. Mm. This one reminds me of Johnny Greatrix and the Werewolf in uh, Canic Chase, but I don't know. I think probably the re- the the fact the reporting happened is true, but I think the fact they saw something is false. I'm going to go false. I think. Okay. <clears throat> Well, I think your instincts are good. In another letter to the Weekly News on January the 17th, a Mr J Grant went to great lengths to set set out his suspicions about the two sightings. Describing himself as an ardent student of the occult and kindred sciences, I'm not quite sure what kindred sciences are, related sciences? Yeah, I think related, yeah. He had studied spiritualism, magnetism, and hypnotism for many years, he explained, and he explained his reason for writing. He likes an ism, this guy. Yeah. He? I am no believer in ghosts of any kind, he said. It has been proved conclusively that such do not appear. It would be a great pity to see the pleasure of all those who shudder at the very thought of anything bordering on the occult spoilt on the account of nothing but a practical joke. Mr Grant, a regular visitor to Lindedno, believed a large black cloth folded in two and hung on black strings from all four corners lay at the heart of the deception. Inside the fold, one half was painted with a phantom form. Leaning over the cliffs, the culprits suspended the cloth. Here they waited patiently and in the silence until their poor deluded victims came along the road, he surmised. He then says, by alternatively pulling the strings and releasing the strings, the ghost could be made to appear and disappear. 
more than one person must be have been involved in the ruse, he concluded. I mean, that's an incredible amount of detail. For, <laughs> that's his theory. of That, okay. But has he got any evidence for that? No, that's just his theory. Yeah. I mean... Um, There's more. I, there is some more. Okay, go on. Mr Grant's observations were remarkably prescient. On Friday, January the 24th, the weekly news proclaimed the Lengdidno ghost mystery has been solved. The apparent apparition, which had baffled the intelligence of all who saw it, turned out to be the work of practical jokers. Uh In a letter to the newspaper, an anonymous reader claimed full responsibility, explaining the ghost had been made out of a black cloth let down from below. It had been painted with phosphorescent glow with the aim of creating a sensation. And for a while it did, but interest in the elaborate hoax soon dimmed and little more was heard about it thereafter. Neither were the culprit or culprits ever identified, but many have surmised that the description given by Mr J Grant was just far too detailed and far too suspicious. Oh, so it's the... it's him. It's him, there's the implication. So the guy who said, I figured out how it happened, because everyone's going, well, that is... Hold on, you've got this black cloth, and then it's folded in <laughs> half, it's let down from a cliff, it's... the strings are black, it's painted with, like, this paint that glows in the dark... And this is exactly how it was done. And then somebody confesses that it was a prank, oh, and see, it was, but they want to remain unidentified. So, yes, a hoax. Just for giggles. Just for giggles. Oh, very good. I, quite I like what, that. I, what I like about that one is you would... That's a lot of effort, but a black cloth with a kind of ghostly fluorescent shape painted on it, back in 1913, that would have been spooky. It would, yeah. You know, you probably wouldn't think so much of it now, but back then it was quite... I wouldn't have thought the paint would have been available. Yeah, quite elaborate hoax. Yeah, no, that's really good. There isn't a lot to do in that, don't they? <laughs> no, exactly, apart from create ghosts on kind of black sheets, basically. Yeah, I once spent uh, a whole day in uh, the Weatherspoons there because the weather was so bad we couldn't do anything else, <laughs> and they were serving Guinness for a quid and £10 down. I think I probably saw some of that activity. <laughs> probably on the top of your Guinness. You yeah. saw a white ghostly figure. <laughs> so, Ben, we've had one definite hoax in Siberia of a well that leads to hell, one likely hoax in Wales of a floating entity. I, I mean, it could be real, but it seems pretty clear that it's not. Genuine weirdness in a Coventry cellar and a scientific paper that really could hold the clue to what ghosts are. And we've had the true life axe wielding bunnyman. That's really good. You well, did, those are you sort did pretty of well. Hoaxes. You did pretty well, I have to say. Well, um, I think after doing this for a few years, your nose becomes accustomed to, um, like, if it sounds too good to be true, yeah, it probably is too good to be true. And in that one, ghosts don't normally appear on on cue. Well, I, I, I think the one the one I thought you might struggle with. Um, was the one in Coventry above the Tourist Information Centre. Because I checked that a couple of times, because it was like I had the same feeling that you had when I first saw that story. Hold on, it's a Tourist Information Centre. They do tours. This is a hoax. This is some PR stunt that they put out, but apparently not. Very, very good. And the phosphorescent 
paint. I just it reminds me deep in my neurons. I was reading something the other day. Um, there's not enough r- real depth to it to cover, but um, during the Second World War, the Americans had a brilliant idea of how to maybe frighten the Japanese into not necessarily submission, but some propaganda. And we've covered it before. Japanese have various um, cultural beliefs and thoughts about foxes and how fox spirits can be harbingers of doom or at least um, mean death. And the American army experimented by painting phosphorus paint on foxes. And oh, really, then, what real life was. Real life was. <laughs> and then releasing them offshore to go and frighten the Japanese. Wow. I don't know if you could spot the flaw in that problem. The, they're painting them <laughs> with phosphorus paint and they're releasing them into the water. So a number of <laughs> clean and normal foxes <laughs> just arrived, arrived <laughs> on the shores of could Japan. They've they just got them onto the shore. <laughs> Well, this was this is very much the point, but no, it was too well defended, right, and and right. it would have spoilt the ruse. Um, as it was, there was a suggestion in there that some wildlife enthusiasts just went and helped the foxes. <laughs> so, um, right. uh, uh, but probably wondered why a, a random species of fox was appearing on the coastline of Japan. Yeah, well, that would be freaky enough seeing a fox come out of the sea, wouldn't it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but imagine being the guy who's like, you've got to paint those foxes, son. Um, Are you sure? (laughs) Yes, do as you're told. Okay, I guess I'm painting the foxes. Well, that that is a different level hoax, isn't it? It is, it is. (laughs) really, wow. But this is is great. So are you going to play a hoax on anybody? Like, you've got got one young kid. Can you do a nice one on him? I, I, I probably can. I, I, what will happen, because I'm not quite sure what day it is, I will forget. <laughs> I always seem to remember yeah. in the afternoon, and it technically you're not allowed to do it after midday, are you? No. No, you're not. No. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think I grew up in this sort of family where people played tricks on each other, sadly. I, I can't think of any good ones to play. If I, if I get up early enough and you go outside into your back garden and you see spaghetti hanging from the trees you know it is <laughs> well that would be alright although we've got a lot of greedy birds in our garden and they'll just be that's true they'll just they'll be just eaten go. it'll be like the foxes all over again will it it will <laughs> Yeah. It'll... it's that time of year where all the birds are nesting and I don't have a very big garden and there's, it's full of birds arguing about where the best place to build a nest right, is right. it's absolute pandemonium at 6 o'clock in the morning right Fair enough, fair enough. Good. Well, uh, we do, um, if you are going to play any, uh, or you do play any April Fool's tricks, um, after you've done them, maybe drop us a line, tell us what you did, see if it works. Particularly if they're ghost-related. Yeah, especially if they're paranormal-related. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, as we said earlier, go, this, obviously our episode will still be on podcast platforms and everywhere you get your pods, but... um, if you do get a chance, go and check us out on YouTube as well at the Quantum Mechanics on YouTube. Um, we might stick some of the some of the visuals for what we've been talking about today in there as well. So it's a slightly enhanced experience, but it's mainly us just doing the podcast. But um, we could do with a few more followers on YouTube. So if you get a chance, just do that for us. 
It is. And if all goes according to plan, we'll be with our friend James from the Lawmen on the next week. Oh, yeah. We've um, got, we got a special one coming up next we week. we got a special one coming up. A bit of a passion uh, on for all three of us, really. So we thought we'd get together and... We're, we're going to do it in the... Um, Back back in the haunted pub, right? We are going to do it back in. Yeah, the Yeah, we're going to be pub. recorded back in the haunted pub next week with uh, James, special guest. So, fun and games, fun and games. We we will see you then. See you next time on the Quantum Mechanics. Take care. Bye bye. the quantum mechanics.